One of the high privileges I have as a pastor is to preach a funeral or memorial service. And I take that responsibility very seriously, but I also find it to be uh, one of the times when I feel most needed. Sometimes I'll tell folks it's sort of like a fireman going to a fire. Do you want the fire to happen? Absolutely not. But when it happens, you're filled with adrenaline. This is what I was called and equipped and prepared to do, and that's how I feel. And so my staff knows that uh, when a person dies, because of the time frame in between death and the service, which is typically two or three days, I'm not to be interrupted. I don't do anything. I cancel every appointment on the day of the funeral, maybe the day before, because I've got to focus on how do I grasp the significance of this person's life, integrate it with scripture, preach the gospel, all of which are very important to me. So this past Monday, we had a memorial service here in the sanctuary. The sanctuary was packed on Monday evening at six o'clock for Pam Corder. But Monday was different in terms of what I did with the day. So yes, there was about five or six hours of the day where I spent preparing for the service, but in between those hours, I took a trip to the fire station number seven, thanks to Tim Showalter, and took a tour of the fire station. In the afternoon, I paused what I was doing to eat birthday cake and ice cream, and later spent an hour or so on the playground. So why was this service so different? Who got my attention so much that I would even divert it from a funeral preparation just to play and eat cake and make a little visit? Well, it's this little guy that's up on the screen here. So our grandson came to visit uh, about a week ago, and this past Monday was his birthday. So I knew when I agreed to, to lead the service on Monday evening that there was going to be a very significant distraction in the form of Arlo. This picture was actually taken at the Science Center on Tuesday. But it matters who it is, and particularly whose birthday it is. And if it's Arlo's birthday, even for something I consider to be one of the most important things that I do as a pastor, Arlo gets attention on that day if it's Arlo's birthday. Friends, we're getting ready to celebrate a very significant birthday this week. And I don't know what it is that you have planned to do this week. I don't know who's at your home. I don't know who's visiting you. We have a house full, so full that over at the Mission House is also my mother and sister and brother who are sitting here right in front of me. So we've got lots of people around, but there's no person more important. There's nothing that any of us has to do that is more significant than celebrating the birthday of our Lord Jesus Christ this week. Let's keep that in focus and in balance. So we go to Psalm 24, which is probably not something you expected to hear when you came to church on the Sunday morning before Christmas. You expected the Luke 2 passage, but what's this about Psalm 24? If you've been here for the last few weeks, you know we've been focusing our attention on various psalms uh, because the psalms lead us into worship. And we had a choice. We could have interrupted that or ended that series early, but we wanted to continue this focus because the psalms in many ways also prepare us for Christmas worship. So I want to turn your attention to Psalm 24 and just remind you that Psalm 24 is a whole song for people with grandparent-like emotions. 
So here are a lot of people who are so thrilled to be together and to be celebrating a very significant event. I wish I knew the event. It seems historically that there are two possibilities of what event they are celebrating with Psalm 24. Similar events. One event is the, the, the time when King David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the first time, but it was still into a temporary uh, sanctuary. The second occasion may have been when King Solomon actually brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple itself that he had built. So either way, we think that this has something to do with the movement of the Ark into the place of worship. And you need to remember that most Israelites would only have once in their life, if at all, and in fact only those living during this time period when this was happening, only once in their life would they have had an opportunity to see the Ark of the Covenant with their own eyes. This was so significant for them. So the Ark of the Covenant had been around since the time of Moses, and Moses had been instructed to place inside it Aaron's rod and a jar of the manna that was a reminder of God's provision, and perhaps most significantly, the original copy, the stone copy, engraved copy of the Ten Commandments. But what was significant about the Ark was that it represented the very presence of God. So it's a little bit odd for us to connect a piece of furniture, the fact that God is there where that piece of furniture is there, but this is all that people knew. And whether it was hidden inside the Holy of Holies or whether it was being paraded through the streets when they saw the Ark, they knew God is here. So when it's on the move and you have your one opportunity, it's bigger than when Billy Graham's casket rolled through town about a year and a half ago. This is big. Everybody's out in the streets. If, if the, uh, the occasion was when David brought the ark into the city, we think that was last week's psalm, Psalm 98, which is the psalm of joy, and it seems to be more spontaneous and loud and chaotic. This one is identified as a psalm of David. It wouldn't at all surprise me to know since David did so many physical preparations so that his son Solomon could build the temple that David would have also written a psalm for the occasion on which Solomon would transfer that temple to its permanent home. So if you can imagine the emotion around that, but carefully choreographed and planned singers and instruments that are there to make sure this psalm is the one we're going to sing as God passes by. So we turn now to Psalm 24, and we find in verses 1 and 2 that David sets this moment in time in advance and that special place in the context of eternity and mind-bending mystery. It isn't just that the ark or even the temple matters on that day. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Even with our increased understanding of the magnitude and the extent of the known physical universe, David is simply uh, taking that same concept into his own generation with what they understand and what would have been the most mysterious, vast, physical entity they would have understood. They didn't even understand how far the stars away were away from them. The ocean is what represented to them immensity and infinity and mystery. And so David says in verse 2, we're talking about the one who founded the earth on the seas. What mystery there is there. 
It's kind of a reminder of the smallness of our own holiday traditions when we limit them to presents or even rituals, even coming to church. Who is being honored here is more cosmic and inscrutable than any of that. This is the one who created everything that exists, who lives all throughout eternity. And it is the one before whom we worship because he made and owns every mountain and every sea, every person and every molecule. They're all under his direction. And so in verses 3 to 6, David focuses on the occasion for this particular psalm. The ark is literally making its journey upward toward the house of worship where it will disappear. And as I said, most Israelites will never physically see it again. But they will follow its path as they ascend to the hill of the Lord or the mountain of the Lord for sacrifice and festival and worship. And David is asking the question, he's setting up the worshipers for the times, the many times when they will go up into this temple and be outside but still be aware. God is right inside there. And he asked the question, who is worthy? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And the typical Christian answer, especially for those shaped by Reformed theology, is nobody. We believe in total depravity. We've been shaped by that understanding. We can't even grasp the gospel unless we understand that we are sinners and all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And that understanding of sinfulness is both Old and New Testament, but that's not what David says. He doesn't say, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Nobody, except by grace. What he says is, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. And we want to say, David, do you know your own story? Because we do, and you don't have clean hands and a pure heart. Well, all of that is a valid theological point, and it sets us up for the gospel, but it's not David's point here, and let's not dismiss it too quickly by just saying nobody's worthy. David is saying, and Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11 about our most holy ceremony, communion, no one should enter it unworthily, and to enter it unworthily is to come with an unexamined heart and life. So David really is challenging you not to examine the heart of everyone else around you, but to examine your own heart and ask yourself, as far as I know, has every hindrance between me and God been removed? Have I confessed my known sins? Do I come from him with a seeking heart, ready to honor the birth of Jesus Christ? So then we come to the final section, verses 7 through 10. And here David personifies the gates of Jerusalem, the doors of the city, telling them to open wide. Well, the commentators differ on whether he's actually using this as a figure of speech or he's actually speaking to the gatekeepers. Either way, the idea is, do you know who's coming through the city here? This is God. You're seeing an ark, but this is God coming into the city. You open as wide as possible, as high as possible, to recognize the immensity and the wonder of the one who is coming before you. This is God, the one who created everything. And who is he? He's the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So that ancient city that David had made his own and conquered needed to open wide because of who this is that is entering the city. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord Almighty. 
So what does it look like for you to open wide your own heart and welcome the Lord? I'm convinced that one of the reasons that the Ark of the Covenant disappeared in 587 at the BC at the Babylonian invasion and has never been found is because God wanted to be sure that never again would we understand or consider or think that somehow God is located to a box and we need the box in order to remind us of who God is or where God is. And indeed, when we come to this journey at Christmas and we welcome Jesus again in his birth, we are so aware that God has come to us not in a box, God has come to us in human flesh. And that baby who is fully human is also the king of glory, the one who created the heavens and the earth. Which is why it's rather remarkable, don't you think? And maybe a little bit mysterious for us to ponder that story in Luke chapter 2, where the king of glory the one who owns and rules the heavens and the earth comes to a little obscure village outside of Jerusalem, a place with no power or significance. He comes there and he lies there in a manger, in a cave, a helpless baby, and nobody pauses to welcome and honor him. There's an innkeeper in the story, and the Bible really doesn't con condemn the innkeeper for not giving Jesus a place to stay or welcoming his parents. The Bible does have a whole lot more to say in Matthew's gospel about Herod, who actually pursued and tried to kill a rival king. But it doesn't say that about the innkeeper. So I wonder, there probably aren't many Herods in the room who are actually trying to squash Jesus, but is it possible there are a lot of us who are innkeepers in the room who simply don't realize who he is and have not prioritized what it means to welcome him into our lives and truly to make him first place? This story has inspired music throughout the centuries. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that music and sing a lot of it this afternoon at the traditional candlelighting service. But I want to tell you a little bit about a piece of music that the choir is going to sing today that has also been inspired by this story. And it has a rather long history. And so for me to tell you this story, I think will give you a deeper appreciation for the anthem you're going to hear from the choir in a little bit. As we trace this story historically, it really starts in uh, the 16th century with a, a, a song that it was originally O Sanctissimus in Latin, but it was translated into German. And I'm totally going to destroy this for anybody who actually speaks German, but I think it sounds something like O du Freulich. Okay, it means in English, O thou joyful. And in English, it means, O oh, thou joyful, O oh, thou wonderful, we're welcoming Christ into our world. So that's one of the pieces that gets incorporated into this song today. And then moving forward historically, we find Ave Maria, which you'll hear a tune, but not the words today. It was written in 1825 by a famous composer by the name of Franz Schubert, who died at the age of 31. Now pause with me here for a moment. He died at the age of 31, but before he died had composed 1,500 pieces of music. So 
he, one of the ones for which he is most famous is Ave Maria. Now, we don't typically sing that song in Protestant churches for probably good theological reasons, because we say, like, we don't talk to Mary, right? But when you look at the words of Ave Maria, the first verse is about who Mary is. Even Catholic sources will tell you this. The second verse is a prayer to Mary. So we don't pray to Mary. But when you think about the first verse, which is basically, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. The Catholics didn't invent that line. It comes from Luke chapter 1. The angel sent from God to Mary said to her, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. So when you think about the question, who is this, and you talk about Mary, yes, I totally agree from a Protestant perspective. It's quite possible to overdo Mary, but I think sometimes in our Protestant uh, sort of reaction to that, we swing the pendulum the other way, and we forget that she is the one that God chose to impregnate with his own son and bear him into the world. She does deserve honor. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And that's the tune that you will hear as part of this anthem today. And then we move forward into uh, one of our next pieces, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, is actually, I'm going to back up a minute. I had to handwrite some of these notes. So I got my dates a little bit wrong. The O Sanctissima was 1792 that was translated into German. The 16th century was a reference to God rest ye merry gentlemen. This, by the way, is one of my favorite Christmas trivia questions. If you haven't been here long enough to hear it, you need to, you know, this is your opportunity, right? Where does the comma go in the song, the song title, God rest ye merry gentlemen? And it goes after the word Mary. And the reason is it's really a song that was written for the shepherds out in the field who were extremely anxious. We'll talk about that this afternoon as well. Anxious after they get a visit from an angel. The angel has to say, as angels often do, do not fear. And so it is that's the reason it's not being you know, politically incorrect, although in the, their generation it wouldn't have been a, as big a deal. But it's actually talking to the men who were the shepherds out in the field. And it's saying, God rest you merry. God calm you down. God give you peace, gentlemen. Uh, because look at, what the, look at what you have the opportunity to witness and celebrate on this day. So this is one of those carols that is anonymous. We don't know when or who written. It was originally an English carol from the 16th century. And it's been developed through the years. Now you need to fast forward to the 20th century when a certain man named Tommy Luckadoo was born. He's singing in our choir. And he told me that one of his favorite movies was The Bells of St. Mary's because it was his dad's favorite movie. It starred Bing Crosby as Father O'Malley. It was one of two movies where uh, Bing Crosby starred in that role. And he sings this O Sanctissimus in Latin in that movie. And because his dad loved the movie, Tommy loved the movie, and he decided we needed to incorporate that somehow into our Christmas worship. Also in the 20th century, a certain man named Peter Corneliuson was born. 
And Peter Corneliuson grew up in a pastor's home, and he loved music, and he decided pretty early on he wasn't going to be a minister, but he loved the organ, and he played with the organ, played the organ when he was a young man. And as he's developed as a musician through the years, he's not only written a lot of music, he is probably the best person certainly I've ever known, not at going like, what are the pieces of music we need to sing? Let's force the choir and instruments to do it. But who are the people that I have in the choir? Who are the people that can play instruments, who want to play instruments? Whose musical talents can I develop? And how can I put something together that will actually enable the people who are here to use their musical talents? And then we fast forward into the 21st century where a young lady named Lauren Lyerly was born into this church and she has developed a passion for the cello. And I am told that at least in the minds of cellists, the voice of the cello is the closest to the voice of God that you can get musically. So Peter wants Lauren to have an opportunity to express that cello here in worship. And then something else happened in the 21st century that I'm sure had something to do with this story. Because the son of Peter Corneliuson, and yes, I know he's Lisa's son too, okay? But I've just been talking about him, all right? <laughs> so the son of Peter and Lisa Corneliuson gets engaged to the daughter of Tommy and Mary Luckadoo. And so now when Tommy Luckadoo says, Peter, I'd like you to put some of this stuff together in, a, in, a, in an anthem, it makes a whole lot of difference, right? Who is this who's making this request? This is my new daughter-in-law-to-be. It's her dad, right? So all of that comes together and brings to us an anthem today that combines these ideas, these histories, these stories into one piece of music. Folks, Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, and we are still writing new music about that event. This event, if that baby had been just an obscure peasant child born to a couple fleeing their hometown because they were embarrassed because she was pregnant, they weren't married yet, if that baby had been born in that circumstance and that's all he was, then we would not still be talking about him and writing music. But he is the king of glory the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who governs all the world and everything and everyone in it. And for that reason, we have music to sing today. Let us pray. Oh God, there are moments when we realize there are things happening that are so far beyond our understanding and even our awareness in the moment where they evoke in us feelings and creativity, but thoughts that are only worthy of the king of the universe. And this season is one of those moments, and we thank you for all of the gifts of those who have brought together this worship on this day. And we want to say to you, God our Father, you are worthy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, fully God, fully human, you are worthy. Holy Spirit, who makes these truths personal and real, who regenerates us by faith in Jesus Christ, you are worthy of the very best that we have to offer. We humble ourselves before you, we look to you, we trust you, we believe in you, and we ask you that you would help our hearts, our hands, our lives, our mouths to sing worthily of your praise with clean hands, and a pure heart.
for we ask in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.